Building on a Firm Foundation Basics of the Catholic Faith A Catechism Series by David Rodriguez Sponsored by the Fatima Center Episode 13 Does God Exist? Given on September 22, 2020 Praise be Jesus and Mary I'm David Rodriguez, Content Director of the Fatima Center and we're building on a firm foundation as we study the basics of our Catholic faith. Today we begin to study the Apostles' Creed, which contains the chief truths that God has revealed to us. If you wanted to provide a very succinct summary of our Catholic faith to someone, we could do no better than provide the Apostles' Creed. As we know, it has three sections, first looking at God the Father, then God the Son, and then God the Holy Ghost. But of course, that means we believe that God exists. And that's not a question that is specifically addressed in our Fatima Catechism, or per se in the Apostles' Creed as two reasons why. Nevertheless, given the state of modern society and what we have all around us, I think that's a very important question to address. So today, we'll spend our time looking at that first. How do we answer this question? Does God exist? Let's go ahead and begin with a prayer, and we'll pray the Apostles' Creed. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered in a Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended in heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So does God exist? Well, the Church teaches us that we can know an answer to this both through faith and through reason. Most of us are Catholics, so I think faith already helps us there. And so today we'll focus more on reason. I would say a particular type of reason, or you could say subset of reason, goes by the name of common sense. It's just what we intuit, what we know, basically just by observing the world around us. And I would say common sense alone tells you that God exists. This is a very powerful argument and it can be shown because men everywhere throughout time and all cultures and all civilizations have believed in a deity. You know, archaeologists have found cities that maybe don't have walls or cities that don't have rulers, cities that don't have laws, don't have coins. I mean, there's a great variety across the world of how men have lived, especially in these ancient civilizations, but without an exception. They all had some sort of temple or prayer or sacrifice a worship of God. They believed in a deity. We haven't found any culture that didn't have a belief in God. Most of them, in fact, had a belief in one God or at least one supreme God. Uh, you still see remnants of that, I think, in the very popular you know, mythologies we know about, like in the Greeks with Zeus being the supreme sky god. That's sort of a remnant. But most of them have all had a belief in one god, and then over time, 
we could say that as sin multiplies upon sin, and men devolve deeper into that mire of blindness that sin brings about, the evil that sin brings about, then the kinds of paganism and pantheisms and even very, very perverse sacrifices to the point of human sacrifices evolved. That seems to have come a little later on as sin grew and infested the world. Nevertheless, the point here just being, all people everywhere have always believed that God exists. It's common sense. It's built into us. It's built into human beings. And there's very few things you can find that fit that category where everybody everywhere has always believed. And that's why I say it really is a strong and powerful argument, stronger than I think most people give it credit. In fact, I would say that for most people, why we believe in God exists from faith and from common sense, that generally suffices. But we'll go ahead now and look at reason in a more rigorous manner, let's say. That too proves God exists. Very simply, you can know that because there are men like Aristotle and Plato who lived you know, around 500 years, let's say, before our Lord was born. They were not privileged to have received the sacred scriptures, divine revelation from God. They did, however, use their human reason. Now, they were still in a milieu of people who believed in paganism, who believed in this pantheon of the Greek gods, who believed in sophistry, who believed all kinds of things. There are a lot of strange philosophical ideas floating around at the time that both Plato and Aristotle are living. Nevertheless, they look at creation and they use their reason well and they dedicated time to it. And they were able to arrive at the correct conclusion that God does exist, that there is one God and that he's our creator. So it can be done with reason. And if you're really interested in those kinds of arguments, and you're dealing with someone who doesn't want to accept faith, I think it can help to turn to men like Aristotle and Plato for those sorts of things. They can give us some insights into how we might be able to discuss with people, because we're living in a culture that is becoming more and more pagan. I would say perhaps more and more like the one Aristotle and Plato lived in. But we certainly have the advantage of revelation, and that makes it, I think, in some ways even easier for us. Before we go into that, a really important question is to ask ourselves why we're even wondering about this. Why this question? Because for most of us, I think for most people watching this video, they do already believe that God exists. Nevertheless, this question concerns us greatly. I think it's because we want to know how we can show it to others, right? We want to be able to talk to other people who say God doesn't exist and have just the right argument. We want to be able to convince them. We want to be able to tell them this and that and have the light bulb go off in their eyes and be, oh yes, I do believe now. God does exist. You're right. So if that's our purpose, and I think for most of us it is, makes sense, I think we need to first look very quickly at what are some of the reasons why people don't believe that God exists. I've just come up with five. There may be others, but sort of five general categories, and these aren't mutually exclusive. I think many times people might have something in all five of them, okay? So the first reason I'd say is simply because we're inundated in a society that is telling us God doesn't exist. You know, you have quote-unquote scientists and philosophers and intelligent people saying God doesn't exist. It's kind of being screamed at you all the time. So it's very easy to believe that. And then second is in general I'd say it's because people tend to be lazy about this question. They don't devote time to think about this. And so there's just insufficient reasoning. It's inadequate. The third one is because they're uncritical in their thinking. So if they do stop to spend some time thinking about it, they often don't follow principles of right reason. We want to cover those. And then fourth, I would say, sometimes they actually develop a argument, a reason, 
it's usually abstract, sort of philosophical, against the existence of God. I think here the most common one is, let's say, the problem of evil. People will say, well, if there's evil in the world, then clearly God doesn't exist. Uh, obviously, the argument's a little more complicated, but that's it in a nutshell. I think it, very few people are actually motivated by that kind of sort of abstract and philosophical thinking. They usually have some of the others mixed in, the laziness or the uncritical thinking, and this is just their justification. Especially when we look at the fifth reason, because this is, I think, why most people don't want to believe God exists. And that's because they want to live as they choose. They want to live as if God does not exist. Because then that means they can live however they want. If, in fact, God does exist, then he created them, and therefore there are certain obligations one has towards their creator, towards their God. And they don't want to deal with those. They'd rather live without those. We all know this. This is inherent to us, right? If I build my house and I'm the creator of my house, then I get to live in it, and I get to decide how my house is going to be used. Right? If I'm going to write a book and I'm going to be the author of the book, I get to say how the story goes and what the story means. Someone else can't come and take over my story or plagiarize my work, claim credit for it, receive the monies that come from it, change its entire purpose. We would all recognize that as terribly immoral. Well, no, this is my story. I'm the author. I can explain it. Others cannot. You, you can't come in and just take my house and use it how you want because I have created this. So we recognize that creation implies a certain kind of ownership a certain type of knowledge over the thing. And so if God created us, then there's a certain kind of ownership there. There's a certain kind of knowledge that God has over us. And as his creatures, there's certain obligations that we owe him. And many people simply don't want to deal with that. They don't want to live that way. And so they choose to not believe in God. And that's the key thing here, because if you recall from our study there on Christian anthropology, the soul is the higher part of man, and the highest faculty, the highest power in the soul is the will to choose. So when someone chooses against God, see, the will is above reason, above the mind. So you can give them different arguments, but if they've set their choice, their will, a certain direction, it doesn't really matter how many arguments you give them. You don't necessarily change the will. The will needs to be changed. And so in that case, what we really need are other things. We need spiritual weapons, things like prayer and fasting. That's going to be very important. So I bring all this up so that you don't just think, well, I've got these great reasons on why God exists. Now I can go out and talk to people and they're all going to go ahead and agree with me. It's not quite that simple because of the will, because people don't want to use their reason correctly. And so it becomes even more important for us to say, well, we're going to pray, we're going to fast to get that spiritual strength to help that darkness fall from their mind and especially for their will to be strengthened to truly want to choose the good to know the truth because that's part of it. I think if someone has a sincere desire to know the truth to really study this then yes God's going to give them this grace to enlighten their mind but most of us uh, many of us do not really want to know the truth I think that's one of those things that really set apart someone like Aristotle or Plato they really did want to know the truth and so they put some effort into it all of this is really backed up by the sacred scriptures. St. Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost in his letter to the Romans, first chapter, starting right around verse 19. You can read with me. Here is what St. Paul tells us. Because that which is known of God is manifest in them, for God hath manifested it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made 
his eternal power also, and divinity, so that they are inexcusable. Because that when they knew God, they have not glorified him as God, or given thanks, but became vain in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. For professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God unto the likeness of the image of a corruptible man, and of birds, and of four-footed beasts, and of creeping things. Wherefore God gave them up to the desires of their heart, unto uncleanness, to dishonor their own bodies amongst themselves. So very clearly, St. Paul is saying, from the created world, from things visible, man can know that God exists. And men did know this. But then comes sin and their vanity. They don't give him thanks. They don't worship him correctly. So then God, you could say, turns his face from them. He allows them this choice that they've made to basically reject him. And so they turn to these graven images, go into idolatry, and that also leads to great moral depravity. The two go hand in hand into this great uncleanness, even to unnatural vices and sins that cry to heaven for vengeance. With all that being said, let's now look at how we can use reason to show that God does indeed exist. Well, I start by looking at creation. Creation is here. My senses tell me that. I know that there is this created world. So there are really only two options, and I think this is very important. We have to recognize only two options. One is that, well, then this world has always existed, that this world itself is eternal. And there have been some philosophical systems that hold that position. The other one is that at some point, let's call it in the beginning, if we want to use that very powerful scriptural term, in the beginning, all this was created. This world was created. Time was, in fact, created. So this is really the other option. At one point, or it's always existed. If, in fact, at some point it was created, well, we have to ask, by what? By whom? By what force? What force created this? Obviously, here you have the answer that some people like to give, that it's purely random, and that it's evolution, and there was a big bang of sorts. We can address that in just a second. Although Kennedy Hall has been doing a fascinating job on some of the other videos we've been showing on the evolutionism versus you know, Catholic dogma. Hope you're able to see those as well. On the other hand, if we look at this idea that the world has always created, well, you still have to ask yourself a very important question that sometimes people don't. And that's that as you observe things, you notice that basically everything is in a state of decay. Our own bodies are in a state of decay. Every day I get closer to dying. Uh, we can all see this in the progression from a young man unto old age. Uh, we can see this in the trees as they are falling and they are decaying. You can see this all around you. I mean, you take your car and you leave it outside and it starts rusting. And over time, and certainly longer time, all things tend towards this process of decay. So you have to ask yourself, well then, if the world had always existed and we're in this process of decay, then and what sustains it? There's got to be some force that sort of keeps rejuvenating it and that keeps sustaining it. It couldn't just be that the world was by itself. Think of, you know, a top that you get spinning. And the top starts spinning, and eventually it stops spinning. It does not spin forever. Uh, we can try to reduce friction as much as we can, uh, but at some point in time, that top will stop spinning. Now, they've created some things. So, for example, they might create a little experiment, and they supply an electric current and magnetic force to that top to keep it spinning, and it has enough energy to match friction 
so that all the energy that is being lost through friction, you know, it's getting from that electrical current, that magnetic field, and then the top keeps spinning and spinning and spinning, and you might see little toy experiments like that in a science museum. But notice there's a force that's being supplied to keep the top spinning, so the top doesn't decay. And so that's the question, really, if the world had always existed, well, there still must be some force that sustains it. What is the force that sustains it is a question that needs to be asked. So there's two real big principles I'm going to talk about very briefly. Again, both of them go into more in depth. One is simply this order and chaos, this concept of decay, and the other is cause and effect. So when you look at order and disorder, it helps to study the second law of thermodynamics. That is a fancy term, but we'll break it down and make it very simple. Although I will emphasize, this is a law, not a theory. When we talk about scientific laws, that means... These are principles that are always, always in play. We don't know of any examples where this doesn't happen. It's kind of like the law of gravity. The law of gravity is always at work. Uh, there isn't sometimes where things just start floating up without any reason. That's interesting that I mentioned that, though, by the way, because even though we say there's this law of gravity and we describe gravity and we even have mathematical formulas to sort of figure it out, how it works, uh, scientists still don't know how to explain gravity. It's actually quite mysterious. It's not as understood as some people think it might be. Anyway, thermodynamics is law. It means we have no example when it doesn't work. If there is an example where it doesn't work. That's basically a miracle. When the laws of nature are suspended. It deals with entropy. That's a fancy word. If you look it up, it's going to say the amount of molecular disorder or randomness. So how disordered are things? That's entropy. This isn't that complicated, though. You could just think about it. When you take a soda and you put a couple of ice cubes in it, you know, the ice cubes are really cold, and we put them in there because in a little while, you know, those ice cubes are going to melt, and the soda is all going to get cold. There's going to be this transfer of energy. Heat is being transferred back and forth. The ice is going to melt. You give it enough time, and the entire ice melts. Basically, the entire liquid there is going to assume pretty much the same temperature. So you had a very concentrated cold and a hot, and when you put them together, it all just became random. It all became uniform. Okay? Things do that naturally. We observe that everywhere. You take a can of aerosol spray, right, and you spray you know, a, a nice fresh smell or incense in the church, right? And so it's very concentrated one time. You see the smoke of the incense, and then it just diffuses out into the entire church, and then pretty much everyone can smell it. That's entropy at play. Okay, so that's how this randomness just naturally grows. So you could say the disorder. The incense was very ordered at first, all contained in the thurible, and then it got swung, and then it got out, and little by little, it just diffuses everywhere. That's all really that the second law of thermodynamics is saying, okay, in layman's terms, really. If you want the official definition, you can look it up. I did. You know, the second law of thermodynamics states that the total entropy, the total amount of disorder, in an isolated system, meaning we're not adding energy to it or adding anything to it, can never decrease over time. So disorder does not decrease. And it's constant if and only if all processes are reversible. Isolated systems spontaneously evolve towards a thermodynamic equilibrium, that's the example of the soda or the incense, with the state of maximum entropy. So the maximum state of disorder. Again, in layman's terms, all we're saying here is that any isolated system tends to degenerate into a more disordered state. Right? Again, a very simple example. If you have a glass of milk, and all the milk is contained orderly and organized in that glass, and then I knock it down by accident, 
The milk does not stay in the glass. The milk spills and spreads out as far as it can. If you've ever had that happen at your dining room table, right? The milk goes everywhere. In fact, I've got to open up the table and look in the cracks in between. Otherwise, the milk stays in there and dries up and gets sick. So you've got to take it all apart. You've got to clean it really well because the milk went everywhere into this maximum state of disorder. The milk wanted to be in this state of uh, you know, thermodynamic equilibrium, entropy, disorder. Never, never would milk that is spilled out over the floor spontaneously kind of get together and then jump into a glass, right? That does not happen. We know that. We know that's impossible. You could say, yeah, but what about millions of years? What about random movements of the milk? What about random explosions? Couldn't that maybe somehow over billions of years get the milk into the glass? No. No, it couldn't. Never will that happen, will the milk get into the glass. It's violating the law of thermodynamics unless, unless you have some external force, you know, unless I come in, clean it all up with a sponge and I can squeeze all the milk back into that glass from my sponge, something like that, I'd still be missing some, but, you know, that's the only way to get the order back. Something from outside the system has to come in, apply energy and apply intelligence and effort to bring back the order out of the state of disorder. When things are left to their own random processes, they tend to disorder. So that's going back to that first possibility that the world has always existed. You have to say, okay, then we have this closed system, the universe that has always existed, and everything's in a state of decay where entropy must always increase. The disorder must always increase. So it should have just kept decreasing and decreasing and decreasing. And by now, if it's been millions of years or billions of years, we should be in a state where we see things just completely falling apart steadily and steadily. But they don't, right? Everything seems to keep working. Every season comes after every season and the sun keeps shining and giving us the light we need. So, so how is the law of entropy being violated? Something must be providing energy. Something intelligent must be sustaining everything in existence so as to, if you will, undo the process of decay or keep things in existence. Right? That's using our reason now, and that's how we're going to arrive within. There's got to be God, and he's got to be outside of the closed system. He can't be part of the closed system, which is the created world, created space and time. You need something outside and beyond that, something transcendent. Right? So this is how you can really think about things, and again... There is not one example that you have in this world that we can point to where this law of entropy is being violated. It's a law. Again, if it were to be violated, that's what we call supernatural. That's a miracle. You're like, whoa, human beings can't have any explanation for that. And that's what creation is, right? Creation is a kind of miraculous thing that happens, uh, that happened. Uh, and even the sustaining of creation, right? The fact that it's not just that God created the world at the beginning and then sort of removes himself and lets it go, because if that were the case, then we would still see this great process of decay. No, it's that God still maintains the system. Every instant of life, God is sustaining it so that it doesn't fall back into nothingness, basically. See, we came from nothing. Now you have revelation here, um, although, again, with the two options... If the world didn't always exist and the world at some point at the beginning got started, then that means prior to that, well, it was nothing. And so if we came from nothingness, there is always that tendency to revert to nothingness. That's the entropy. That's the decay. And God is required, his almighty power, we'll get into this in other clauses, but his almighty power is constantly required 
to sustain the world in existence. If he withdraws himself from the world, it would cease to exist and fall back into nothingness. Law of entropy. I mean, there it is. So it's not just that he created at one point, but it's more. It's far more complex, and your reason should be able to figure it out just from seeing the world around you. Anyone who owns a house again, you know this. I mean, our house is always in a state of decay. I mean, around my house, Saturday is like the honeydew day, right? There are all these little projects that need fixing up around the house because things have been decaying. Even if it's just lawn work, even if it's, you know, a little bit of paint here, whatever it is, things are always in a state of decay. And we have to apply energy. The outside force has to come in. Well, in the creative world, that's God. Next time, what we're going to do also is we're going to continue this exploration of how we show that God exists but we're really going to look at cause and effect. That's another very important principle, as well as the argument, you could say, from design, which we're already touching on to, the argument from beauty. I think these are important for us. They help strengthen our faith, but they also give us tools by which we can engage the world we live in, the society we live in, be convinced of our own truth, but then go out as soldiers of Christ, you know, living out our confirmation, where we help share these truths with others to a world that so desperately needs them. So please do you know, send us your questions. You know, if you have a question here, especially on the order, the disorder, the law of entropy, these things that we've covered, as well as other points regarding the existence of God, you can email us at info at fatima.org. Phone number as well, 1-800-263-8160. All these details are also at our website. Uh, you can also get the videos, download the notes that we have, Please do continue to pray. Pray for the Fatima Center. Pray for the situation in the world. Pray for the consecration of Russia. And again, very, very grateful for the donations that you send. Please do continue to send those. Those are very much needed. In particular, I ask that you commit to sort of even saying, I'm going to make a monthly donation to the Fatima Center. I'll make a pledge. Those are also a great help, especially for us in planning future activities. Let's go ahead now and close with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Next week we'll be talking about cause and effect, further proofs, of how we can show the world that God does indeed exist. We'll see you then. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved. We invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org.